0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and thanks for joining us today with Back to the Bible Canada. In today's message from our series, Celebrating the Word of God, we continue by looking at why the Bible is a closed book. So let's learn from Dr. John Newfeld as we refer in our text to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1-4. to 4.
1: The word exclusive is somewhat of a negative word. It means that others, either people or things, are kept from something. And if you have an exclusive club, it might mean that women or minorities or people under a certain income bracket cannot attend. And most of us react badly to that. We don't like it. We prefer the opposite. Inclusive, welcoming, including, adding more. It means that the club is open to everyone who wants to be a part of it. But the word exclusive, which comes from the word to exclude, can be seen as positive. If you invent something unique, you will likely get a patent in which you will be given exclusive rights to develop the product that you have invested in. Others are excluded because, at least in our society, we think that if we didn't ensure this kind of exclusivity, it would take away the initiative to continually strive for excellence. So to use another example, if a news organization gets an exclusive right to a story, That's considered of great value because those reporters who work tirelessly to uncover something that would be of interest to all of us ought to get the right to first publication as a reward for their intensive labor. So exclusive can be seen as positive or negative depending on the circumstances, but however you look at it, the word always refers to excluding something or someone else. You know, In our two-week series of celebrating the Bible, we're making some exclusive claims about the Bible. When we claim an exclusive canon, we mean that the Bible contains exactly 66 books and that none can be added and none can be subtracted. The book has been completed. The Bible excludes the addition of any other books, or for that matter, the subtraction of any other book. We are making the claim that the book we have is exactly the book that the Holy Spirit designed for us to have, not one word too many or too few. These words, verses, chapters, and books are the exclusive list of the books that make up the Word of God for us. That is not to say that these are the only words God has ever spoken, but these are the exclusive words that God has given for the entire human race. Now, I'll come back to that definition as we go through the program, but you ought to know that the Islamic holy book, the Quran, was completed about A.D. 632. Muslims claim that both the Old Testament and New Testaments are also holy books, but that the Quran is the last and greatest revelation of God. And by that, they mean that the Bible is not a closed book, not an exclusive book. A further revelation has and can be added. Now, Mormons say the same thing. They call the Book of Mormon another testimony about Jesus Christ. But Christians argue there can be no other holy book, that this one is exclusive. That is, all others are excluded from the category of God's supracultural truth, for the entire human race. This book alone occupies a unique place. In other words, when Muslims or Mormons claim they honor the Bible, would we then, as Bible-believing Christians, turn around and also honor their holy books as well? And our response is to say, no, we will not. We claim that the Bible is exclusive. This alone is the Word of God, and all other books are excluded from this category." Now, what reasons might we have for making that claim and the use of the term exclusive when speaking of the Bible, a positive or a negative claim? Well, let's see if we can understand the Bible's own statements about this matter. We're going to start in Hebrews 1 and then move over to the book of Ephesians. But let's start with Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. Now, you will probably remember that I've already used this text in opening this series on the Bible. But now I want us to consider this same verse and see another point the writer of the book is making. So let's read it again. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He that is the Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, notice the claims that are being made about Jesus. The first is that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, meaning that Jesus himself is the beauty, the greatness, the brightness, and the magnificence of God. And then the writer of the Hebrews now adds another, a second attribute of Jesus. He is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. The Greek word for exact imprint is the word character, which is a word that comes to us from the world of engraving. Imagine an ancient Roman coin in which a stamp or a die is lowered onto a Roman coin. That's the picture. Just as the stamp used in the process and the image on the coin correspond exactly with each other, so says the writer of Hebrews, so also the father and the son correspond exactly with each other. And so, two claims about Jesus. First, he is the actual outpouring of the brightness of God. And second, he is the exact imprint of the Father. Now, the writer of Hebrews makes a third claim. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, earlier, the writer of Hebrews told us that the Father created the world through the agency of Jesus, and now he tells us that the universe continues to exist moment by moment because Jesus continues to sustain it. That's exactly aligned with what Paul tells us in Colossians one to 16-17. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him—now watch this—and he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. That is, the nuclei of each atom does not fly apart because Jesus, the great creator of all, continues to act inside the creation and holds the creation together or sustains the creation at each microsecond in time. So let's get back to Hebrews. Jesus, the glory of God, the imprint of God, the sustainer of all things. Now notice the last Two attributes of Jesus. Here's the fourth. After he had made purification for sins, that is, Jesus is the one who made it possible for deeply sinful, rightfully condemned, and hell-bound sinners to be forgiven and enter into the presence of God. And then fifth, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That means that right now Jesus is enthroned in the place of honor and has been given a name that is above every other name. That, says the writer of Hebrews, is the Jesus that I'm talking about. And in context, long ago, God spoke through Old Testament prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken in a way that he has never spoken before through his word made flesh. In other words, the revelation of God and of the word of God has reached a climax. And in context of what we're talking about, this means that the greatest word that can be spoken has now been delivered in the person of the Son no greater thing can be added and that god should enter into the human race and speak not just a word from god as a prophet would but actually be the very incarnation of the word of god so for argument's sake let's consider what some might say i believe the bible is a holy book but now i have a word that supersedes this book if the bible is a holy book then it must teach what's true and if it teaches what's true what word could supersede jesus If we argue that the Bible is a holy book and that, for instance, Muhammad is a prophet of God, then by very nature he is infinitely inferior to Jesus, for by Muhammad's own testimony he is no more than a prophet of Allah. But Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of the divine. Hence, if the Bible is holy, then no greater word can be spoken than the way in which the Bible ends by God himself stepping into the human race and himself speaking. Anything else is anticlimactic. But what of the idea that one could accept the identity of Jesus as being who the Bible claims he is, but then add another book like the Book of Mormon or any other revelation that might purport to simply expand on the teaching of the supremacy of Jesus? Why end the revelation of Jesus with a mere 27 books? Perhaps as John says in John 21, verse 25. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them written, I suppose, that the world itself could not contain all the books that would be written? Well, perhaps more books need to be written. And as Luke begins his gospel, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us... See, if many a narrative have been written at the time of Luke, where are those narratives now? And what would be even theoretically wrong with the idea of adding a new revelation of Jesus right now? When we come back, I will address why the 27 books of our New Testament are the only inspired narrative of what Jesus did and what his coming actually means.
0: It's so important to grasp the Bible's exclusivity and authenticity, not only to edify us personally, but also to be able to speak confidently about it to others. As we've already seen, Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 4 provides us with a rich and full understanding of why the Word of God is the final and ultimate revelation of God through Jesus Christ. Everything else hinges on this foundational truth about the Bible. When we come back, Dr. Newfeld will teach us more key reasons why we know God's Word is final and complete.
2: Recently, Sarah called to share, I've been saved for over 50 years, was just a little girl in fact, and Back to the Bible has been part of my life ever since. Since then, I've given to the ministry, even out of my allowance when I was little, Dr. Neufeld brings scripture to life, there is depth yet practicality, challenge but hope. The world has changed, yet Back to the Bible has remained constant in its values and teaching and has embraced technology while ensuring the gospel is not diluted. You do a marvelous work and I look forward to hearing you every day. Thank you, Sarah. To know the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada is making a difference is a great encouragement. We'd love to hear from you as well. The Word of God is powerful, and we're privileged to teach its truth every day. To touch base, to receive information, or to offer your financial support, call us at 1-800-663-2425, or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: If you listened to yesterday's program, you heard me speak about how Christ determined not to write but to entrust the writing of his birth, life, ministry, death, and resurrection into the hands of twelve men he had chosen, whom he called apostles. He designated the writing of the meaning of his ministry into their hands and promised them that after he had left, the Holy Spirit would so come upon them that they would accurately remember everything that he had done and taught, and they would also understand fully the implications of what he had done and taught. We also saw that Judas was rejected and that he was replaced by a man named Matthias, again bringing the number to 12. And following that, we made the point that Jesus himself chose a 13th man, Paul, who was in Paul's own words, one untimely born or unnaturally born, a man chosen in a unique way so that the implication of what Jesus did would be plainly understood. Jesus himself instructed Paul as he appeared to him, probably over a period of time and personally instructed him in the gospel that he wrote. But if that's the case, why couldn't another, maybe a 14th Paul also, further expand our understanding of Jesus? Why not Joseph Smith or some other prophet? Now, behind that question is the question of whether the apostolic office is an ongoing office or whether it has ceased. Ephesians 2:19 to 20 helps answer this question. Speaking to believers in Jesus, the text says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Now, without dealing with the identity of the prophets, please notice that the apostles form the foundation of the house of God. The imagery is simple. The church is being compared to a great structure. The foundation on which the structure stands is the apostolic testimony of Jesus, who is the cornerstone. Just as one does not repeat the foundation of a building, so the foundation of this structure is laid down once and for all. What the apostles gave us, then, is the enduring foundation of the church. All that successive generations can do is build upon the one foundation that has been forever laid down. So in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10, Paul adds, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now from this we get the biblical doctrine of a complete and final canon, or a complete and final New Testament in which nothing can be added or subtracted. The apostles have once and for all given us the complete and accurate revelation of all that Jesus taught and the full revelation of what his life, teaching, and action means. They also instruct us authoritatively how to apply the ministry of Jesus to our individual lives and to the church as a whole. In this, they have given the church for all time all she needs to do the ministry that Christ has called her to do. And that's why we don't have living apostles today. If we did, we would have to admit that we have an incomplete Bible. For those in Romanism who argue that the Pope has inherited the apostolic office, we argue that the Pope does not meet the criteria for apostleship that was laid out by Jesus himself, that he must be an eyewitness of Jesus, have been personally trained by Jesus, and so forth. An apostle, because he represents the foundation, is a ministry never to be repeated. It is foundational to what we know of Jesus. Now, if you're paying attention when we read Ephesians chapter 2, and you remember that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, uh, so who are the prophets? And if we go to Ephesians 3, we will notice that the text identifies who they are. I'm reading Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4-5, to and Paul is speaking again to the church. He says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, please notice two things. The prophets, whoever they are, cannot refer to the Old Testament prophets because these prophets have insight into the meaning of Jesus. Since these prophets, whoever they are, function right alongside of the apostles, they, like the apostles, have come to know the infallible insight into the mystery of Christ. They have added new revelation about Jesus that the Old Testament prophets did not have. They, like the apostles, built the foundation or the undergirding truth of the church, a foundation that others can only build upon. Their work, like the apostles, can never be repeated. But who are these people then? Well, we begin by noticing that they are not necessarily the people that the New Testament describes as having been given the gift of prophecy. I'm, I'm thinking of people like Agabus, who in Acts 11, verse 28, foretold a famine that would affect the believers in Jerusalem. A careful analysis of Agabus's prophecies reveal how different he was than the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel. Whenever Agabus prophesies, he speaks about something which is time and situation specific. When biblical writers prophesy, however, they speak supracultural truths, truths that escape their times. Yes, they do speak to a specific situation, but what they say ends up being true for all people at all times. So we've come to a conclusion that the gift of prophecy spoken of in passages like 1 Corinthians 12 cannot refer to the foundation of the truth of Christ. Who then are the prophets that, along with the apostles, form the foundation of the church? Well, in 1 Corinthians 12:28, Paul says, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Now, it's clear who the apostles are, and it's clear that the teachers who come third are those people who are called upon in every generation to teach that which the apostles and the prophets have laid down once and for all. It's for this reason that Back to the Bible makes a staple in our programming of teaching a verse-by-verse explanation of Scripture. Now, without going into all the details— It seems obvious that the prophets must refer to men like John Mark, who writes the book of Mark under the leadership of Peter. They must refer to men like Luke, who authored both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. We have noticed that Luke was a close associate of the Apostle Paul, and he functioned directly under Paul's leadership. They include also men like James and Jude, and depending upon one's view of the authorship of Hebrews, might have included a man like Barnabas. The prophets who form the foundation of the church are those New Testament writers who are not apostles, who are under the leadership of the apostles, that is why they come second, but whose writings bear the authoritative mark of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as we reach the end of the New Testament, we can see that the apostles are making provision for a generation of leadership that will take over after they're gone. So in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul's last letter states in his instructions to Timothy, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So provision is made to teach that which has been laid down by the apostles and the prophets, but never for the next generation of apostles and prophets. No provision is made for that. See, the foundation has once and for all been laid, and that's why the Bible is an exclusive book. If Jesus truly is who the New Testament declares him to be, then the 66 books form an exclusive book or what we call a closed canon. Christians can be confident that there are good, biblical, and reasonable reasons for arguing that there is no other book like it. Not the Book of Mormon or the Koran or any other supposed revelation to have come later can make any claim to be the Word of God, for God has spoken ultimately and finally in Christ. And as you read your Bible, know that you have something precious and something exclusive. It's the only book like it that the human race has.
0: John, this is a great and timely message because this is being challenged so much, the inerrancy of God's Word, that it's exclusive, and uh, the biggest challenge maybe today is a lot of this is coming from within the church. That's where the biggest challenge is. How do we respond to that?
1: I think the challenge is coming in two ways. There are those who want to add extra revelation to the Bible, and that surely is a challenge, and must be combated in the strongest way possible. But the challenge also comes on the other end. You know, I've heard of people who only want to accept the actual words of Jesus, you know, the kind of the the red-letter Bible only, and they ignore by that that Jesus never actually wrote a thing. But Jesus entrusted the writing of the entire Revelation to others, and so it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever for individuals to speak that way. But we see this happening in two ways, those who want to contract our Bible and those who want to expand our Bible. And I think we have to continually come back to this same thing that I've said. The Bible is an exclusive book. Nothing can be added, nothing subtracted. What has been given by God is exactly the way God intended it, and it and only it can be for our long-term eternal good.
0: I hope that today's message has impacted you in a meaningful way as we're reminded again of why we can trust the finality of the Bible. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. February 28th will be the last day to participate in our International Ministry Match Campaign. Our international efforts include our partnership with Back to the Bible India, providing Bible teaching programming throughout India, much of Asia, including the Middle East and China. It also provides funding for our annual Pastors Bible Teaching Conferences, the next two taking place in Delhi and Hyderabad in June of this year. Your efforts allow these important ministry initiatives to take place whereby thousands are discipled, pastors are instructed, and the Word of God is taught. Also, your participation provides critical resources for the launching of the daily Bible teaching program translated into key international languages available both nationally and globally, beginning with Mandarin. Join us this month for our international match campaign and see your donation doubled up to $25,000. So call today at 1-800-663-2425 or give online at backtothebible.ca.